0: We're going to be reading Daniel chapters 4 and 5. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these... a holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity." All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the day's eye, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command... And Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him, that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. This is God's word.
1: So listen to this advice written in a book uh, 30 years ago for the hard-pressed office executive, like many of you. Repeat out loud these powerful affirmations. I can do great things. I have great possibilities deep inside me. You'll feel like a braggart, but read them out and then repeat them again, louder. Try this prayer three times every morning. I believe, I believe, I believe. This kind of prayer really flushes the negatives out of the brain. Now repeat, I can, I can, I can. Of course, it does sound very 1980s now, but there's still a lot of devotees around (laughs) who'd say that possibility thinking has really changed everything for them. They testify to the changes it's brought. Its appeal is obvious, isn't it? I mean, it would be great, wouldn't it, to have all those negatives flushed out of your brain. Well... Stand naked in front of the mirror every morning and tell yourself, I love you. (laughs) That's what I do every morning. (laughs) There have always been stories of people who are desperate for upbuilding and reassurance. Narcissus was one in ancient mythology. He loved nobody till he saw his own reflection in the water and he fell in love with that. The king in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, was another. Must be people with names beginning with N. (laughs) (laughs) He's full of himself, a proud man, as Narcissus was too. A vicious tyrant, yet it would seem plagued with the most disturbing dreams which reveal his private self-doubt, his need for Pulling himself up by his own shoelaces. Listen to what he says wandering around the rooftop of his palace in verse 29. Is not this great Babylon which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? You can hear the chief executive, can't you, of some multinational. Is this not Coca-Cola that I've built up? <laughs> And another king, King Belshazzar, in Daniel chapter 5, somebody else full of himself, only this one is drinking away his insecurities, masking his insecurities with a, an act of bravado. What I want to do in this uh, last session, a bit of an ambitious task, but I want to do these two stories covering these two chapters of Daniel. Chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 5, Belshazzar. Absol- actually one story, I think, of two kings fronting up to God. And for both of them, their position has gone to their head. But before we consider uh, Daniel chapter 4 and 5, I just want to paint the the backdrop, the the canvas behind the detail, if you like. Set the scene a bit. Come back to chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2 of Daniel. where And we're told where all this is taking place. I kept calling it Babylon. But if you look to verse 2, you'll actually see that Babylon is in a place called Shinar. Now, Shinar is rarely mentioned in your Bibles. If you turn in the the notes that you've got to the beginning of uh, talk two, you'll see some references there. Uh, The introduction to the talk on Daniel chapter nine. One place where Shinar is mentioned is very significant. It's Genesis chapter 11. Please, will you come back there with me? Genesis chapter 11. And this is the story of the Tower of Babel, which is actually, if you look in eleven two, the Tower of Shinar. And it's the story that's built, so that the tower that's built. Remember, the context here is we're just after Genesis chapter three. And in this story, in Genesis eleven. The story begins really in verses three and four. We can see human rebellion in all its ugliness. All you've got to do is read the minutes of the planning department. Verse four, they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now, the two halves of the verse fit together. Uh, See that up on the screen here. They want to build a city because, end of the verse, they don't want to be dispersed over the whole earth. They want to build a high tower because they want to make a name for themselves. And the problem with those is that, first of all, they're defying God's word because God had told them not to be gathered together but to spread. That was his instruction. Just a few chapters earlier, at the end of the flood, they were to fill the earth, to team all over the earth. And they said, no, we're not going to do what God says. And also, they are defying God's rule because making a name is all about fame, isn't it? Brand recognition, wanting people to know who we are and be impressed and to treat us as the big boys in town. And towers have always been used for that, haven't they? From San Geminiano in medieval Tuscany to the Shard of the Thames. They say, you know, notice us, be impressed. In other words, verse 4 is all about human sin in its most brazen insolence, we hear what God says and we won't do it. We see that God rules and we won't acknowledge it. It's just like Genesis 3 deja vu all over again. We know better. We're going to gather together and find our security. We're going to be great. We're going to rule. That's what the people are saying. And then in Genesis 11, verse 5, you get the Lord's perspective on this. Tower building. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. This is the turning point in the whole story. What do these guys say are they doing? They are building a tower, verse 4, with its top in the heavens. And the Lord who is in heaven, verse 5, has to come down to even see the city. So the Lord is up there and he says... Um, What's going on down there? I think I'll go down and have a look. Oh, look. Oh, look. Oh, bliss! Oh, look. It's a little Lego tower. Oh, that's so sweet. Look what they built. Oh, and they think it's so big. Oh. So the Lord is saying, wow, what a big Lego tower. Yeah, I said earth and look what I made. Oh, that's a nice sundial. I made time. (laughs) And so God decides to hinder their rise. This monolithic anti Christian state embarking on this defiance against God as they build a tower. That is a very frightening thing, isn't it? All for one and one for all is an inspiring slogan for an adventure story. But it's very scary at Nuremberg, isn't it, with vast rallies, people marching to Hitler's tune. And so God goes down in verse 7 to mix up their language, to confuse their language. They'd said in verse 3, we're going to mix up some stuff to make bricks. And God says in verse 7, using exactly the same word, I'm going to go down and mix up their language. And this is the Bible story of where different languages begin. I remember reading uh, this story, studying this story in a Bible study group. And in the group was uh, Kathy, a language teacher. And as we did it, she was saying, "Ah, I now see where my job comes from as a language teacher. My job is a direct consequence of human sin. That's an interesting perspective. (laughs) So Babel, Babylon, stands for two things. First of all, it stands for proud rebellion against God and his rule. It is an attempt to order the world, one world, one set of values, one language, one list of approved deities, one national educational curriculum, unity. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is after. He's reviving Babel unity. That's what he's doing in Daniel chapter 1. It stands for unity. But also, ever since Genesis chapter 11, Babel, Babylon, stands as the place of confusion, of mixedy muddleness, and confusion that is expressed in terms of lots of different languages so that we can't understand one another. It's just like the United Nations, isn't it? The place that stands for unity, one world pursuing togetherness, and nobody can understand one another. They've all got to wear headphones before they can even talk to each other. One world. Don't make me laugh. Now, I wonder if that's why Daniel is in two languages. Remember I said how yesterday that it's, one is in the Persian language and one is in the Hebrew language? And I wonder if a, that's a symbol in Daniel of this confusion that there is in the world. Ever since people set themselves against God to defy him, God confused as his punishment so that people couldn't understand each other and couldn't understand the world in which we live. We need God's people to explain that what you see is what you get world. The world doesn't know, doesn't understand until God speaks to us in a language we can understand and tells us stuff. And that is what we see in Daniel, isn't it? That in Babel, in Babel, in Babylon, in Babylon... God reveals stuff to his people. And again and again, all the way through Daniel, the king brings in the wise men of Babylon and they are hopeless. What he needs to bring in is the person who can tell what God reveals so that we can make sense of the world we live in. We need to live with both the reality that we see and the reality that God tells us. That is the backdrop then to these stories. And the two stories, the first story being the humbling of proud King Nebuchadnezzar, a tyrant who is desperate to have his self-esteem stroked. And he hears voices. And we're left in no doubt that the voices he hears, the voice he hears is God. So first of all, it's in a dream, Nebuchadnezzar, has seen a huge tree. And then in verse 13, a messenger comes into the dream and says in the next verse, 14, cut it down. And according to verse 17, this decision comes from God himself. God is warning Nebuchadnezzar, this is my verdict, cut you down. The second voice Nebuchadnezzar hears is Daniel's, who comes to explain the dream in verse 19. But he says the same in verse 24. This is the interpretation. This is the decree from the Most High. God warns you, Nebuchadnezzar, that he will cut you down to size. And the third voice is in verse 31. After he's ignored the voice of the dream and he's ignored the voice of Daniel and he hears a direct voice from heaven, verse 31, saying, this is what I'll do. The king of heaven, which is the name the chapter gives to God, warns and again he warns and again he warns. Just as he warns us, not normally through dreams or voices from heaven, but by words just the same. By his word, God speaks to us to warn. My in-laws live uh, in Eastbourne, and we've often been on walks on the cliffs near Eastbourne. And our children, when they were younger, wandering off the path towards the edge, it was not unloving of us to shout, come away. When you know there's danger, you warn. It's a very loving thing to do. It would not be loving when we're on walks with our children as they go wandering towards the cliff edge to say nothing and to scrape them off the beach later. The loving thing is to warn them, which is exactly what God does to Nebuchadnezzar. He warns him how close he is to the edge. The king of heaven warns that he will judge, and that is the message of Daniel chapter 4 that all human beings are accountable to God. We're not told when we will be held to account. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't told when he would be cut down to size, but he was told that he would be, and we too are told that we will be held to account. Every knee will bow. Every person arrogantly enthroning themselves and building their own little tower of Babel to make a name for themselves. We'll have to move aside. What happens to Nebuchadnezzar? Well, 12 months pass, verse 29. And the king in verse 30 is walking around saying, isn't my Lego tower huge? He ignores the warning and the most awful thing happens to him. See, his delusions were that he was more than human. Look at me and what I've done. And God gives him delusions that he is less than human. Just as William Blake tried to represent. He loses his marbles (laughs) for, it appears, seven years. Verse 33. The word was fulfilled. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. He lived outside with his body becoming wet with the dew of heaven. His hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails like bird claws. The king of heaven humbles the proud until he acknowledged that God is sovereign over his kingdom. Mighty though that kingdom was, the humbling of proud Nebuchadnezzar. The humbling of proud King Belshazzar in chapter 5. Some years later, this is the son now on the throne, but not for much longer. Because if you look at the end of the chapter, verse 30, you'll see how differently this story will end. Not with the king restored to the throne, but with the king losing the throne. Nebuchadnezzar did humble himself before God and had his kingdom restored to him. Belshazzar had an encounter with the same king of heaven and ignored it. And in verse 30, that very night, he was killed. He's humbled against his will. God brings his kingdom to its knees. Throughout this chapter, throughout chapter 5, the threat from the Persian army is dangling over him like Damocles' sword. The entire Babylonian dynasty that his father Nebuchadnezzar had established is poised to come to an end. The Persian army is camped outside. That's the scene in chapter 5. So Belshazzar says, Let's get together. Come on, cronies. (laughs) Let's eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And the feast of this chapter well, it's like a game of let's pretend. Let's ignore the reality. Let's rearrange some deck chairs on the Titanic. Because the writing is on the wall for Belshazzar, uh, literally, in this case. And he watches as a hand writes a terrifying message on the wall. Probably only he could see the hand and the writing in verse 8. And it is absolutely alarming. But Nebuchadnezzar's wife is still around. That's probably who the lady is in verse 10, probably the queen mother. And she recognizes what's going on in verse 10. It's a vision, just like those her husband kept having. And she says, you know what you need? You need Daniel. (laughs) And that should be obvious to all of us after reading this book this weekend. If you want to know what's going on in the world, you've got to send for God's people. They're the people who can explain things. I presume that's the point of having bishops in the House of Lords, isn't it? That The government should turn to the bishops and say, oh, you are, you know, the God who reveals things. You better explain to us what's going on in your dreams. Anyway, <laughs> <coughs> here's the message in verse 26. Probably many, many, teckel and parsing. it had a ring a bit like pounds, shillings and pence. It's that kind of a message which is interpreted as a message of God's judgment on a proud Babylonian king. Again, God humbling those who walk in pride. And we've got to go back to the beginning of chapter 5 to see what it is that Belshazzar was doing wrong. What is the pride? See, Nebuchadnezzar was desperate to have his ego stroked. You know, look at what I've done, everybody. Please tell me I'm great. Belshazzar, on the other hand, is defiant because what he does in this feast is deliberate contempt for the faith of his dad, Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know whether you noticed it. As we read through chapter four, the whole thing is an edict. It's a a letter being sent out from the king to all the people, a, a public declaration from King Nebuchadnezzar of his faith to tell everybody what he's now realized about the king of heaven, that he's praising him and honoring him. But if you look down to chapter five, verses three and four, you'll see here is a deliberate act of contempt for the faith of Nebuchadnezzar. They bring in the golden vessels that Nebuchadnezzar had got from the temple in Jerusalem. Do you remember right back in chapter one? He took these goblets and he ransacked the city, that's so he got them from, Jerusalem, brought them back to Babylon stolen these holy symbols of Israel's worship. And it looks like he's just stored them away in a cupboard somewhere. I wonder what Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter four would have thought about all those goblets. You know, the end of chapter four, when he came to realize that the king of heaven rules on earth and that he was like an ant before him. I don't think he'd have wanted to use those goblets from the temple just to For dinner on a regular Thursday evening, would he? But Belshazzar does. He brings them out of the store, puts them on his feasting table, and toasts his pagan god. It's a deliberate act, isn't it, to say the god of heaven is a nobody. My dad's god is a nobody. Israel's god is a nobody. Nebuchadnezzar's god is a nobody. Yabu sucks to him. Hurrah to king, well, his kings. He's utterly Contemptuous, isn't he? Look on to Daniel's words, verse 22. Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart. Though you knew all this story of Nebuchadnezzar, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, your concubines, have drunk wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wooden, stone, which don't hear or know, but... The God in whose hand is your breath, isn't that a remarkable thing? The God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you've not honored. And for that, God sends the warning of pounds, shillings, and pence and judgment falls as the dynasty falls. (coughs) Now, what these two stories have in common is a question. Will these two kings of undoubted authority, will they recognize the greater authority of the king of heaven? Will they recognize who they are in relation to God? Will they be wise? The prayer, but when it's praying for our queen, prays for her that she, knowing whose authority she hath. Will these kings recognize whose authority? they have. That's what God is teaching Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, the, the foreigner's God, the foreigner's weak-seeming God, Israel's God, the God that you ridiculed. He's the one who gave you the authority that you have. Because actually these two stories, uh, these two chapters rather, the, the one story that they tell are not the story of two kings, but of three. The third sovereign in these stories is the king of heaven. And the message here is be wise before the king of heaven. Look at the verses right at the very middle of our story. Let's pick up what Nebuchadnezzar realizes in verse 34. I bless the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. Why? For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and say, what do you think you're doing? But as I read that, isn't that the problem of these chapters? (laughs) What kind of a God is this? What kind of a God does this to people? turns people into animals to go out and get wet with dew and eat grass. In Shakespeare's King Lear, faced with a similar psychotic illness, one character says, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. Is that what God is like here? You know, he's a bit like a a schoolboy pulling one wing off a blue bottle, so that you can just watch the fly fly around in circles, then pull some of the legs off to watch it land and not be able to take off properly, amused at the frantic buzzing before you stamp on it. Perhaps that was just me. But is that what God is doing here? You know, playing with Nebuchadnezzar vindictively, scaring Belshazzar half to death just for the fun of it? You know, you call it humbling, but actually it's humiliating, isn't it? pushing them into submission. Verse 35a, Nebuchadnezzar concludes all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. Is that how God sees us? As nothing? Well, I think the first thing to say is that what God did in these two chapters are one-offs. These these things happened, but the fact that these these things happened here like this are not necessarily models for always. But it is revealing that God will humble the proud either now or ultimately, finally, at his judgment of which he warns. Chapter four, verse 37. The very last words of that first chapter and the center of the two stories is the text for the whole passage. Those who walk in pride. The king of heaven is able to humble. We do not rule heaven and we do not rule earth. However big our Lego towers become. It's not all about me, me, me. God is making that point, not just for the benefit of his people, but for all the world. The universe does not revolve around you. I know you think it does, but honestly, it does not. We are not all here for you. God is not here for you. Everything changed after Copernicus demonstrated that the sun was at the center of the solar system and not the earth. And we need that same Copernican revolution to recognize that we are not at the center of everything, but the sun we are not at the center of the world I may try to put myself on the throne I may try to run my own life my own way without God I may try to build a very big Lego tower but God is the center and he is the living ruler of the world and the king of heaven humbles the proud sometimes gently sometimes painfully sometimes over years sometimes at a stroke, sometimes in the now, sometimes later, but always graciously, for he wants us to understand what is what. He wants us to know him as the king he is. And I want to suggest that the big message of Daniel is this, that since this is who, is, who, since this is who God is, since... We have been allowed to see his rule again over this weekend. Since God gave Daniel understanding, a glimpse behind the curtain, and since God, through Daniel writing it down for us here, has given us a glimpse behind the curtain, that same understanding, since we know all this, we should live logically. There's an appropriate way to live, if this is true, a fitting way to organize yourselves, a logical response at the end of this weekend. You wouldn't back the Babel builders, would you? That's my point. Not when you know that there is one to whom the Babel builders must give an account before whom they must stand, who's got power and authority over them. Will you just check your view of reality? There is not just the world that we see It is not just the what you see is what you get world. There is the reality that has been revealed to us again and again this weekend. And the Bible's word for live logically is wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible isn't about being clever, though it is about knowing stuff. It's closer to what we mean when we talk about godliness. Living life in response to the truth that God has shown us. In response to his character. Humbly. We hold on to the truth that he's revealed alongside what we know and see and experience all around us in this world. Wisdom comes from the God who's revealed to us another reality. When you can see how the pieces fit together, when God has revealed that to you, when you can see what the whole picture will be at the end, when it's all finished. Then live logically, be wise. At the funeral of uh, Louis XIV in Notre Dame, central Paris, in the full view of the open coffin, the preacher began the sermon. This is the funeral of Louis XIV. The preacher began the sermon with the shout only God is great. Only God is great. That must have been an electric moment, is not it? Oh, for a bishop who would begin <laughs> a funeral like that. Our pr- pride is not like Nebuchadnezzar's maybe or not like Belshazzar's, but we've, only got our own, we've all got our own little empires, haven't we? We've built something up, our, our family, our home life, our career, our lifestyle. We've built it into something which works for us. We build it into something that mummy and daddy can feel proud of, about which we can feel proud, in a humble way, of course, pride. <laughs> and we survey our successes, just like Nebuchadnezzar does in verse 30. We take pride in our children, in our position, in whatever. You know, if I'm honest, I often take something down from my shelf that I've had a hand in, and I admire it. When I speak somewhere, for example, like this weekend, of course I want to do it for God's glory, but I enjoy seeing my name on the program. And even if I spiritualize my success and prosperity, you know, that as God being pleased with me, that is pride. It will pass. You will pass. Nebuchadnezzar passed. He's in room 55 in the British Museum. That is it. He's done with. At least he gets a room. You think you're going to get anything? (laughs) Nobody will remember you in 200 years, will they? Nobody will know your name. Possibility thinking may not be the technique we use, but being like Narcissus is common, full of ourselves, us at the center. I can do great things. I can, I can, I can. I believe, I believe, I believe. I was talking to my brother only last year, and we were talking about how, if we're honest, we feel we don't need to pray. You know, it's the bottom line. We think we can manage. We're okay, our life's all right. By large, we're competent. We've got our lives to work for us. We, we don't need to pray, do we? But, of course, prayer is the way that we express faith. Don't know what it means to be a believer if you're not praying. Don't know what it means to be humble if you're not praying. It's proud people like me. They are the proud whom the kingdom of heaven humbles. And whether it is the case that I'm as militantly anti-God as the builders of the Tower of Babel, or whether I'm as committed a Christian as you could imagine, that Copernican revolution is something I need every day. Be wise, live logically in the light of this. I don't rule heaven. I don't rule earth and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Can we kneel to pray? Our oh, father God, this feels slightly quirky and odd, but actually it's entirely appropriate. Those who walk in Pride. You are able to humble. Lord God, your dominion is an everlasting dominion. Your kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. You are do according to your will. None of us can say to you, What are you doing? Please, Lord God, would you help us to live our lives in the light of the reality you revealed to us this weekend. For Jesus' sake. Amen.